Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn again to John chapter 1, passage that was read a few moments ago in our hearing. John chapter 1. The song we just sang begins with the incarnation, the birth of Christ, and goes to the exaltation. Really sums up Philippians chapter 2 in his humility is coming and then his exaltation. And what we celebrate at this time of year. There was a father who, in preparing for the holidays, called his family together, wanted a family meeting, and he sat them down and he said, Christmas is going to be different this year. We need to be more disciplined in our use of time. We need to curtail the excessive spending. We need to be more considerate of relatives, and we need to be kinder and happier in the atmosphere we have in our house. And he concluded by saying, let's make this the best Christmas ever. Are there any questions? And the seven-year-old son piped up and said, Dad, I don't think we could ever improve on the first Christmas. That was the best Christmas ever. Maybe not from the reception, but from the reason and from the results. William John Cameron, a newspaper editor who was born in 1879, noted There has only been one Christmas. The rest are anniversaries. It really is a celebration of the birth of Christ. And and while there's much excitement, there's much emotion, there's the sentimentality that, that really centers around the cultural aspects of the season, the the heart, the core of the season is the birth of Jesus Christ. The very name commemorates his birth. Christmas begins with Christ. And we remember that climactic event when when God came in human flesh. John's gospel lays that out for us. The, The theological foundation that is found in these opening verses, the 18 verses, that that John doesn't begin with a genealogy like Matthew does. There's no nativity scene like Luke presents. This is the Christmas story without the the familiar characters, without the landmarks, without those those points of reference that we often look at of Mary and Joseph, of, of shepherds and angel choir, of Bethlehem and the star. No, John provides a different perspective. This this is a, a theological section, but it's also tremendously practical. And and while there is much deep theology that we could dive into in this passage, I'm not sure that it's, it's wise to do that on the day before Christmas. But the practical application applies to every one of us. And what I want us to see, and we're going to look at verse 14 this morning, what I want us to see from this verse is that when you understand the glory of God in Christ's incarnation, coming in human form, you will be motivated to trust Him personally. Because it's through Jesus Christ that we we see the glory of God displayed and we see Him in human flesh. We're able to experience the gracious love of God. Let's, Let's look again at verse 14. We've read the first 18 verses together, but look with me again at verse 14 of John chapter 1. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we look into Your Word this morning, Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your word, to to see your glory and to see your glory in your Son. And as we see that, to respond in heartfelt adoration and genuine trust. We pray that if there's one that does not have that personal relationship with you, that today they would believe in the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. And we ask this in his name, amen. In John chapter 1, verse 14, this verse picks up the terminology that we first saw in verse 1. Verse 1 tells us about the Word, the Logos. And and now verse verse 14 tells us what the Logos became. Verse 1 says what the Logos was. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Now we see what the Word became. The Word became flesh. We saw in verse 1 that the Word is eternal. In the beginning, the Word was there. The the Word is distinct from God. The Word was with God. But the Word was deity. The Word was God. The Word was God but became flesh without giving up His deity. And that's what we refer to as the incarnation. Comes from a Latin word, God incorporated in flesh. The Word became what He had never been. He became flesh. One person with two distinct natures, the God-man. And understanding that ought to bring us great comfort. The first thing I want to see is Jesus Christ understands your situation. We, we, we see him coming into this world. In, in the Old Testament, we meet a man that is familiar to many of us. His name was Job. God declares that Job was a blameless, upright, righteous man. That was, that was God's testimony about Job, that he feared God and he turned away from evil. He, he had a great testimony and, and he had a good life. The Lord had blessed him. And then trouble strikes. In one day, he receives word that all of his children were killed. His wealth had been taken or destroyed. Then his health is broken. And his wife encourages him to curse God and die. That because she sees the misery, you'd be better off not living through this. And then his friends show up. If that wasn't enough... His friends come, and they sit there quietly for seven days, and then they decide to encourage him. You know, we we know the saying, with friends like this, you know, who needs enemies? And, And they encourage him by saying, obviously, there's something wrong in your life. This is a problem with your integrity. And this goes on for chapter after chapter. And in one, one of his moments of, of frustration, as Job is trying to call out, he, he expresses his, his desire to vindicate himself, but his frustration is expressed in Job chapter 9, verses 32 and 33, where he says this, For he, God, is not a man as I am, that I may be able to answer him, and that we should go to court together. 
nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Do you understand what Job's frustration was? He said, God is, is in heaven and I can't get to him. I can't plead my case. I can't share my side of the story. You're questioning my integrity, but if I could stand before God and plead my case, and I can't do that. You know, he said there's no mediator. Have you ever, ever dealt with a mediator? Ever gone to mediation? The job of a mediator is to listen to both parties, to, to weigh the facts, to look at the, the situation, and then try to find common ground. And go back and forth and, and say, you know what, this person is saying this, but the, I think they'd be willing to settle for this. And this person, and you need to understand, and the back and forth, and basically pleading the case. And Job expresses that very human frustration that, that God is up there and I'm down here and there's no mediator. There's no go-between. There's no umpire. There's no arbiter. There, there, there's no one to step in for me. And that's what Jesus Christ does. He bridged the separation between God and humans. That he understands your situation because he became a man. Contemplating the vastness of the distinction between God and humanity is, is really a source of frustration. You know, how can I reach God? How can I know that He hears me? How can I know that He understands what's going on in my life? How do I plead my case? I don't think we can fully comprehend the step down that it was for our Lord to leave heaven and come to earth. Even if He had come as a king, that would have been a huge step down. You know, sometimes we hear of people who struggle to get a job because they are overqualified. Other times, people don't want to do a job because it's beneath them. The Word, God, the Son, stooped lower than any person ever has. The Creator took on the form of the creature. And in doing so, He endured human frailty. That's what, the second thing that we see about Him understanding our situation who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? The idea that the creator of galaxies and comets and moons and meteors was laid in a manger as a helpless baby is almost incomprehensible. You know, most of us don't like the feeling of being out of control. We, we attempt to minimize dependence on others we, we want to control our fate, be the masters of our situation as much as possible. And here is the one that verse 3 says, without him nothing was made that was made. And he experiences human frailty. Coming as a baby, having to be cared for, having to be fed, having to have his, his meet, needs met. One of our other Christmas Song speaks of low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. He who throned in height sublime sits amid the cherubim. The one who sits in the highest heaven comes and is laid in a manger. He came into the world that was made by him and the world did not know him. And you know, that, that statement here in this passage is true today. 
We know more about our world today and our universe today than at any point in human history. We, we measure the galaxies in billions of light years. We, we, we know the grandeur of the galaxies and the minutia of the intricate studies of microbiology. We live in the information age, and the world still doesn't know him. In fact, they reject their creator. They, they think that that scientific knowledge in some ways puts their study in, in a place where there is no God. And the Bible actually has a category for people who say that. It says in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the more we see of the heavens and miss it, the more foolish we become. People do not become gods. You know, the ancient Egyptians claimed that the Pharaoh was a god. Emperors in, in various cultures and from various dynasties were, were considered to be gods. Some individuals were deified after they died and viewed as gods. There are some religions today that teach that humans become gods. That's not the Bible. That's unbiblical. But God became man. Man doesn't become God, but God became man. Luke chapter 2 verse 52 tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He grew in wisdom and stature. He, he had a human mind. He had to be taught to walk, to learn to talk, to learn the alphabet. He learned to read. We read when he was 12 years old, he picked up the, the scroll and he's asking questions. He, when he played in Nazareth, if he ran and tripped and fell, his, his knee would bleed. You know, he knew what it was to sweat, to grow weary, to be hungry, to be thirsty. Who is he in deep distress, fasting in the wilderness? He knew the pains of hunger. These were not the experiences of deity. These are, these are the experiences of humanity. That, that's what we experience. He didn't even break a sweat when he created the universe. He spoke it into existence. But when he helped his earthly father Joseph in the carpentry shop, he sweat. He knew what it was to experience poverty. I like how the Puritan pastor Thomas Boston put it when he noted, when he was born, he was born in another man's house. When he preached, he preached in another man's ship. When he prayed, he prayed in another man's garden. When he rode into Jerusalem, he rode on another man's donkey. And when he was buried, he was buried in another man's tomb. He knew poverty. He laid aside the, the free exercise of his divine attributes, those privileges. It says in, Psalm, in, in Philippians 2, he made himself of no reputation, taking upon him the form of a bondservant. He, he emptied himself, not by putting off deity, by, by pouring it into humanity and the limitations of that. And so he knew our frailty. But we see also that Jesus Christ identifies with your struggles. Not only does he understand our situation, he knows what we're going through. He was born of a sinful mother and had imperfect parents. You know, he grew up with parents who didn't get everything right. 
and yet he was sinless. He became obedient. He, he grew in favor with people. He obeyed those imperfect parents. You know, I've, I've wondered, did, did Jesus' parents really consciously understand that God was his heavenly father, that this is the second person of the Trinity? Joseph knew that Mary's conception was of the Holy Spirit and that the son would be the deliverer. Mary was told that her son would be called the son of the highest and sit on the throne of David, that, that he was the son of God. I wonder how cognizant they were of that in the day in, day out, you know, fixing meals, washing clothes, and dealing with children. I mean, what a tremendous responsibility. Well, do we believe that our children, our heritage, a gift from the Lord? We too have a parental responsibility. We parent under the, the eye of God. And since our children are born sinners, how important it is that we direct their hearts to know the Lord, that that be a priority. But he knows our struggles. He experienced human emotions. He enjoyed the fellowship with others. And we see the, the human emotions that, that Jesus experienced as he, he fellowshiped with, with others. He attended large gatherings. I think I have another slide on that. He went to a wedding celebration in the next chapter. Chapter 2, he also had private discussions with the twelve. And then with the three, the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. You know, he knew the human emotions of happiness and sadness, of excitement. He knew what it was to be disappointed and rejected as he turns to his own disciples and says, will, will you also go away as people abandoned him? He had to navigate some, some challenging, difficult family dynamics with his brothers who didn't understand who he was. And the Bible tells us he had brothers and sisters that, that we're, we're several of them are named and sisters as plural and, and with Mary and Joseph and Jesus, there were at least nine in this family. And in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, even his brothers did not believe in him. And so in Matthew chapter 12, the, the hostility of the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees is on the increase and, and, and they come against Jesus and they, they actually accuse him of doing miracles under the power of the, the ruler of demons, of Satan. And it's in that context that his mother and brothers show up and want a word with him. And, and they want to talk to him. You know, I wonder what they wanted to say. I wonder if they were thinking, you know, don't embarrass our family. You know, you're, you're, getting them, you're getting the religious people all riled up, and that's going to impact us too. His brothers didn't understand. They didn't believe. His mother kept these things and, and pondered them in her heart. You know, family rejection is painful. It leaves lifelong and life-altering scars. We find Jesus even on the cross as he's dying, he turns to the apostle John and says, pointing to Mary, behold your mother. He wasn't entrusting her care to his earthly brothers, but to one of his disciples. He knew what it was to experience joy and sorrow. He knew what it was to cry. 
The shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, is Jesus wept. Who is he that stands and weeps at the grave where Lazarus sleeps? He knew what it was to experience pain, loss. He suffered misery. We see that also. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53, 3 tells us. He experienced not only physical pain, and we're familiar with what took place at the crucifixion, but, but he experienced emotional and spiritual pain. As he cried out in Mark 15, 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew what it was to be separated from his father. There is no sin in suffering, but suffering comes because of sin. It's not a sin for us to suffer. Now, sometimes it's brought on by our own stupidity. But it's not sin to suffer. But suffering's a result of sin. And he became human. He took on the form of a servant. He became flesh and blood and experienced the sufferings that we experience. He experienced betrayal. He was falsely accused. He faced open hostility and personal rejection. And the emotional pain of that, he understood it. We see also, though, that he, under, he withstood sin's temptations. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He came and obeyed the law. It, the law was given to keep human sinfulness in check, to, to point people to the coming of the Messiah. And the lawgiver submitted to the law and fulfilled the law. In fact, Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You know, we, we don't like law. Our, our human nature, our, our bent is to rebel against restrictions. You know, we, we, we don't like things. You know, if it says wet paint, don't touch, what's our tendency? Yeah, well, let's see if it's still wet. That, that's human nature. We rebel against restrictions. Our, our sinful bent resists those restrictions, and we push back against restraints. Jesus didn't do that. He fulfilled the law. He even paid taxes to those who received their very breath from Him. The Word became flesh, not only to relate to us, but also to do something to us. It wasn't just that He would understand, but this was a two-way street, the interaction, that not only would he understand our situation and our struggles, but he, Jesus Christ came to reveal God's splendor. And we see that in this passage as well. He dwelt among us. The, the Greek word that is used there for dwelling among us is, is, is the word that's translated dwelt is the word that kind of carries the idea of tent camping. It would be of tabernacling and, and, and the idea of tenting among us. Now, the picture that usually comes to our mind about tent camping is, you know, being outdoors and campfires and st stiff joints when you get up in the mo morning. 
that was not what John's readers were thinking. They weren't thinking a weekend away in the mountains. Their minds would immediately go to the Old Testament. The Jewish readers would think of the Old Testament tabernacle. He came and tabernacled among us. That was where Israel saw the glory of the Lord. In fact, when the tabernacle was set up, as as Israel had come out of Egypt and they're out in the wilderness and God gave instructions for the tabernacle and it would be set up in the middle of the camp, it says when, when Moses set up the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, it says this, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That would be their picture. Or when Solomon dedicated the, the temple, In 2 Chronicles 7, it says in verse 1, And when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. That was the picture in their minds. The Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us, and we were able to inspect it. That's what John is saying. The the tabernacle in the Old Testament was humble to look at. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. It didn't have that splendor that we would necessarily think. The tabernacle, though, was the center of the camp. Israel would camp around it. This was the center of their life. What place does Christ have in your life? He came and tabernacled here. The tabernacle was the center of the camp. The glory in the Old Testament was described in in terms of brilliance, of brightness, of, of a consuming fire. It was that cloud of glory that would lead Israel and and, and the glow that when Moses was with God, he came down and his face glowed and and Israel said, you need to put a, a veil over your face. It's too bright. But it seems that here in John 1, the glory mentioned directs our attention to the spiritual light. That He was light and life. The light that comes to all men. And understanding He was full of grace and truth. Verses 6 through 13 are almost parenthetical. The word is mentioned again for the first time since verse 1 here in verse 14. And and, and that theme of the light shining in darkness seems to reference the glory of God that comes into a sin-darkened world. That's what we celebrate with the birth of Christ. I wonder if John's mind went to the Mount of Transfiguration. He was one of those that was there, that inner circle that that Peter, James, and John, and we read about it in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 3, that after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and John, his brother, and led them up on high to the mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. I think John's mind had to go to that. His face shone, his raiment shone, but that wasn't the normal everyday walk. Jesus didn't walk around with a halo. 
as some artists depict him. But the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. See, a, per, a Christian is a person who sees the glory of God the Father in Jesus Christ. Have you seen that? A passion for the glory of God is a very clear expression of saving faith. If you get excited about the glory of God and, and there's that excitement for His glory and a genuine love for the Lord Jesus, those are evidences of saving faith. If we can talk about that and you're like, well, when's He going to be done? We have to ask, what's, what are we really celebrating? The joy of Christmas, yes, there's the presence, there's the commercialism, there's the, the cultural aspect, but the core is Christ. And that ought to be what moves our heart. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, and beholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him. The Son is the only begotten, the unique, the one of a kind who comes from the Father. The tabernacle was the place of sacrifice. The Son is also that sacrifice. The Word tabernacled among us. We saw His glory, and yet He paid the price for our sins. When He, by Himself, purged our sin, He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He humbled Himself and became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. The glory of God is most clearly seen at the cross. Because it was the love of God that made the cross voluntary. It was the holiness of God that made it necessary. Who is he on yonder tree? Dies in grief and agony. We see he came. And he came to provide for your salvation. Jesus Christ he knows our situation, He knows our struggles, He reveals God's splendor, but He came to provide salvation. He was full of grace and truth. You know, we hear a lot about grace versus truth. That's, that's almost the discussion in our culture. You know, are you a truth person or a grace person? And how we really need to emphasize grace and the importance of that. And, and it's almost set up like these are in conflict. They're not. He was full of grace and truth. Now, we tend to err on one side or the other. You know, grace people are loving, caring, show compassion and, and understanding. Truth people are principled. They defend rights. They are steadfast, firm, and unbending. You know, grace wants to be loved. Truth wants to be right. But grace without truth doesn't need salvation. We tend to, oh, that's okay, no big deal. No, truth says there's consequences. Truth without grace offers no hope. How can I as a sinner please a holy God? We must defend the truth, but we also defend the fatherless. Jesus did both. He said, allow the little children to come unto me. 
and do not forbid them. And yet he also turn, overturned the, the tables in the temple of the money changers who were, who were making a mockery of the truth of God. And we see both. Jesus came. He was, he was a gentleman. There was a gentleness, but he was a man. And sometimes we focus too much on the meekness and fail to realize this was a man that when he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say that you're Elijah, you know, the prophet who called down fire from heaven. Some say you're John the Baptist, the one who, who would be out in the, the wilderness with unusual garments and dietary choices and denouncing the f religion of the day. That's who they identified Jesus as. He was a man. He was full of grace and truth. He was both. You know, it's interesting. The word grace is only used four times in John's gospel. And all four are right here. Verse 14, twice in verse 16, and once in verse 17. And those are the only ver verses that use the word grace in the gospel of John. But the theme of grace is throughout the gospel. Truth is one of those themes that is developed. It's used about 25 times. But grace permeates the gospel. When you go to chapter 4, you find a woman who had moral failures and she meets Jesus at a well in Samaria and she experiences grace and truth. There was a man who was born blind. We read about him in John chapter 9. And, and from his birth, he was blind. And the disciples ask, so why was this man born blind? Who sinned? Was it his parents or him? Which is a rather unusual question. When would he have had to sin to be born blind? But where are the disciples looking? They're looking at the past. They're trying to figure out where to put the blame. Why did bad things happen to this person? And Jesus states, this is so that the glory of God, the work of God could be revealed. While the disciples look backwards and try to determine blame, Jesus points to the present and to the power of God. He was full of grace and truth. See, lavish grace never clouds a love for the truth. And in Jesus, both are displayed. He was the full expression of the Father's grace. Seeing His resplendent glory ought to sensitize us to the horror of sin. We see sin lightly because we fail to look at the truth. For all of sin to come short of the glory of God. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. A Redeemer has come. Have you trusted Him? In John, 17, or John 3, verse 17, it says, For God did not send His Son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God's glory is not displayed by destroying us, but it's displayed to draw us to Him. So Jesus did not come as the judge to condemn the world or as an executioner, but as a Savior, a Redeemer. He came to seek and to save the lost. This is, was not some sentimental, unprincipled grace. It was grace united with truth. Christ is full of grace without compromising truth. He came to His own, but unfortunately His own did not receive Him. 
Hebrews 2 verse 14 tells us, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He took the same flesh and blood that he could destroy the power of Satan. And yet, doesn't our culture live in the fear of death? We don't want to think about death. We don't want to ponder death. And when we do have to be exposed to it, we want it to be quick and, and over as, as soon as possible. He came to release us from the fear of death and the bondage of that. In Him was life. And yet, He experienced death that we might have life. Who is He that from the grave comes to heal and help and save. He knows our situation. He knows our struggles. He came to reveal the glory of God, but He came that we might be saved. So how can this apply to us this morning? Well, first of all, realize Christ came to be with you. Do you fellowship with Him? What place does Christ have in our life? Do we, do we prioritize time in His Word that we can, can hear what He has to say? Do, do we delight to gather with His people knowing that where two or three are gathered in His name, He's in the midst of them? Do we, do we delight to, to assist the bride of Christ, the church, or do we come as consumers? What am I going to get? Like, what, which of these presents is for me? And we'll avoid the others. Do we set our affection on things above. Why set them on things below when we are citizens in heaven if we've trusted Christ? He came to be with you. Do you seek time with Him? Secondly, Christ continues to be for you. Do you go to Him? Do you ask of Him? Who is He to whom they bring all the sick and sorrowing? They came with needs. They came with hurts. Do you realize when you are discouraged, Jesus is your hope? When you are weak, He is your strength. When you are sad and lonely, He will comfort you. And when the darkness engulfs you, Jesus Christ is your light. Have you trusted Him? Do you have that relationship? Because He desires to be in you. Christ desires to be in you. Have you believed in Him? Ian Paisley, a preacher from Ireland years ago, said, Christ died. That's history. Christ died for us. That's the gospel. Jesus was born. That's history. He was born for you. That is the hope that we have. Tis the Lord, the wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. So at His feet we humbly fall. And crown him, crown him Lord of all. Folks, it would be a tragedy to spend year after year, for some of us decade after decade, celebrating the birth of Christ and never having received him as our personal Lord and Savior. Our culture does that. Have you received him? Have you believed in Him? He came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, 
To them he gave the right, the authority to become the children of God. What does it mean to receive him? It goes on and answers that. To those who believe in his name. It's not enough to believe the facts. Have you turned from your sin and trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you received him? Have you believed in him? If not, why not do so today and make this your best Christmas ever? Because when you understand the glory of God in Christ's incarnation, you will be motivated to trust him personally. He understands your situation, your struggles. He displays God's glory. Is he your savior? Let's pray together.